This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I've been a teacher for a long time, and I've met and known a lot of teachers all over the world. In my experience, teachers are dedicated, hardworking, constantly pushing themselves to learn new skills and information in order to remain relevant in their classrooms, and just they generally inspire me to be a lifelong learner myself. Teachers have impressed me time and time again since I became an education major at the University of Missouri back in 2002. On that note, I'm delighted to welcome another Religious Studies High School teacher on this show. The education and teaching episodes of this show are a recurring subplot because teaching has been the work of my life. So far, my episodes specifically about teaching about religion and religious studies are past guests George Frizzell, Eric Lancaster, Dr. Rabia Gregory, Dr. Charles Haynes, Linda K. Wertheimer, Mr. Ben Marcus, and Mr. John Camardella. Today, I'm pleased to add George Coe, religious studies, current events, and world history teacher in Fairfax County, Virginia, to that list. He runs a popular blog with teaching resources at worldhistoryeducatorsblog.blogspot.com. This conversation talks about constitutionality of teaching about religion, how to arrange a semester of teaching high school religious studies, a wide range of resources that he and I have used with great success in our own classrooms, and a deep dive investigation of what a typical religious studies class in a typical United States high school looks like. This is a snapshot of a hardworking teacher doing great work for teenagers in the United States. I had a similar conversation like this with John Camardella in episode 68, so if you missed that one, you can go and find that as well, especially if you are an aspiring religious studies high school teacher. If you are an aspiring high school religious studies teacher, please reach out. I'm happy to share resources with any of you at any time. Lastly, some of George's past students have liked some of my posts about this episode on Twitter recently. So if you are a former student of Mr. Co, this episode is dedicated to you. I hope you enjoy this chat with George Co. And I hope you maybe send him a note of appreciation for his dedication to being the best teacher he can be. So without further delay, here's my chat with Mr. George Coe. George Coe, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me on the show. So I'm excited to talk about teaching with you today in religious studies, and can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit? 
Yes. Uh, my name is George Coe. I teach AP World History and World History, and from time to time an elective in world religions, in Northern Virginia public schools in Fairfax County, right across the river from Washington, D.C. Uh, Fairfax County is one of the largest school systems in the country, and my school, West Potomac, has about 2,700 students and is a very diverse school. Excellent. Okay, so we're going to specifically hone in on that religious studies elective that you teach, because that's kind of like your interest that crosses over with my interest. So what was your path professionally towards getting your job in religious studies at the high school level? How did you go about making that happen? Well, Greg, my path is probably or was probably very different from most people. I started teaching religion as an elective about eight or nine years ago. Some of my AP World 10th grade students asked if I would teach an elective that they could take in 11th or 12th grade. Uh, I looked in the county and saw that religion was an elective already approved, so my school agreed to list it for the following year, and almost 60 students signed up. But here's the problem, Greg. I didn't know a lot about religion outside of what's included in the world history curriculum. In ninth and 10th grade, students do get a pretty healthy dose of world religions. They learn about the rise and spread of all the major religions, and they learn the basic beliefs of those religions. For example, they learn the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the differences between Mayahana and Theravada Buddhism, or the Five Pillars of Islam. I knew that I had to do something different than simply rehashing what they'd already learned. So here's what I did to to kind of beef up my knowledge of religion. I read religious textbooks like Fisher's Living Religions and Houston Smith's The World Religions, and I also studied syllabus from both high school uh, teachers and even college professors. Uh, these gave me ideas about organization and even content. Uh, I was also lucky because that summer, uh, the Hickey Center for Interfaith and Dialogue at Natheris College in Rochester, New York, was offering a week-long certificate program. The, the Hickey Center had done professional development in Fairfax before, so we were on their mailing list. Uh, their program would run a week, and I got my school to pay for a flight for me to go to Rochester and participate in the program. And so it was a week-long program, and each day we studied a different religion. It was loosely based on Houston Smith's textbook. So on the first day, we might uh, study uh, Hinduism, and a Hindu practitioner might talk to us for an hour, and then we'd discuss uh, Hinduism for another hour. Then we'd go to a Hindu temple in Rochester, and then after that, go to an Indian restaurant to eat. Uh, the next day, a uh, Zen Buddhist might come and talk to us and teach us uh, how to meditate. The highlight of the program was uh, Friday prayers at uh, the mosque in Rochester. The leader of the program was a retired imam, so he got us into the mosque for a good part of the day, and we saw uh, pretty much everything that goes on from ablution, and we were allowed to sit upstairs uh, during the prayers. So that's the untraditional way I got into uh, teaching world religions. Excellent. 
Um, what's really funny is you mentioned the Hickey Center. I live in Buffalo, which is 40 minutes from Rochester, so I may have to go and see what's available at the Hickey Center myself, because that sounds like something that I could do um, maybe this summer. That would be really cool. Did you did you like that experience? It was a terrific experience, and I'm so glad I, I did it. I think it was one of the best professional developments I, I, I've ever done. Okay, so you have an elective class that you set up that was in huge demand in your school, and obviously you undertook the role of a student as well to be as well prepared for that class as you can. So now, fast forward nine years, and you've done the class, um, I presume, for the last nine years. So can you take me through like a tour of your course in high school religious studies? Like, How do you order your units? How much time do you have? Um, just kind of tell me like the basic structure of how you go through the class. Okay, so I try to concentrate more on how religions are lived rather than spending a lot of time on uh, doctrine and text. Those are important and we cover them, but I think it's more important that kids try to understand and appreciate how uh, religion is lived and practiced today. So consequently, you'll see four elements that sort of define uh, the way I teach a religion. Uh, these four elements include uh, visits to local mosques. We're right across the river from Washington, so there is a great diversity of religious sites uh, in the metropolitan area, uh, so it's very easy to take field trips. Uh, we also uh, have discussions through an organization called Generation Global. Generation Global was started by uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair about 15 years ago to put students together online through a platform similar to Skype. They provide a uh, moderator and they provide a topic. So in the past, my students have talked to students in Indonesia, uh, Ukraine, uh, England. Uh, so we try to do uh, those uh, conferences at least once a month. So field trips to see uh, different houses of worship, uh, participation in Generation Global. Uh, I also try to introduce students to film that helps them understand how uh, religions are practiced today. Uh, there are any number of films uh, good for the classroom. Sita sings the blues as a reinterpretation of the Hindu Ramayana epic poem. Uh, so film provides another opportunity to show students uh, how religions are lived. And finally, at least weekly, I try to have discussions with my students about current issues that involve religion. Some of these include discussion of court cases. For example, last year, uh, a landmark case uh, was decided at the Supreme Court uh, that involved the wedding cake baker in uh, Denver, Colorado, who refused to bake a cake for a gay couple. We uh, read about that case in class and discussed it in class, but there are also literally uh, scores of other issues uh, that involve both courts and lower courts that we try to discuss uh, from time to time. So that's sort of the 
framework behind uh, the way I teach religion. Cool. I love that you use Cetus Sings the Blues. I was so fortunate to have a class that was 85 minutes long. And coincidentally, Cetus Sings the Blues is about 80 minutes long. So what I would do is I would bring in like my popcorn machine and students would bring in all kinds of snacks and we would set up like a big snack buffet on my countertop. And then uh, they would load up on food and then we would just have a film day. After we read the Ramayana, we would then watch it and then we would discuss it the very next day um, after seeing the film. So it was like the coolest film ever. But Nina Paley... um, of the creator of Cedar Sings the Blues. I just love her work. So I'm super excited to hear that you and I had that in common. Yeah, and I also do a similar thing. We read uh, an abridged form of the of the Ramayana first and then see uh, the video. Don't know whether you're familiar, but the National uh, Endowment for the Humanities has a terrific lesson on the Ramayana, an abridged retelling of it that's about 12, 12 pages long with a cheat sheet of, of characters. Nice. We have um, a... We have a class set of the graphic novel version as well from the Indian graphic novel uh, company MR Chitrakata, and they have a Valmiki's Ramayana graphic novel that is absolutely stunning. And I can share a, uh, a version of that with you as well if you've ever if you've never seen their work. Have you ever seen MR Chitrakata? No, but I would love to see it. Uh, yeah, graphic novels are terrific. And, oh yeah. And there's, if you there's, share that, that would be great. There are so many, too, from this company. They do uh, the stories of Shiva, the Ramayana, the Bhagavad Gita, and there's all kinds of great stuff. So I'll share that with you um, offline as well because they are incredible. Um, what religions does your course specifically cover? Okay, so I cover essentially Eastern religions in the fall, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Sikhism. Confucianism, Shintoism, Taoism, and then the Abrahamic religions in the spring. But I also do probably three introductory modules uh, before we start uh, the sort of tour of the uh, world religions. Uh, The first is a short module in which we define religion, uh, look at some of the scholars that are important in the study of religion, like Bella, uh, uh, Otto, I think it's Otto Bella and Durkheim and a few others. We look at origin myths around the world and compare them, and we look at the role of mythology in religion. So that's one short introductory unit. A second unit is based on methodology, and I adapt the methodology that comes from Dr. Diane Moore. She's a professor at Harvard Divinity School and has recently worked with the National Council of Social Studies to develop standards for teaching religion in uh, public schools. Uh, She also piloted an online course about religious literacy and sacred text. Uh, She offers three assumptions for studying religion. Uh, The first is that all religions are embedded in culture, and she she allowed us to test that 
and uh, you can adapt that for students. You can look at your community. You can look at the skyline and see uh, the way that religion is embedded through the steeples, through the churches, through the mosque. You can see it in the calendar. Uh, the second way uh, or second assumption that Moore offers is that religions are internally diverse. We tested that in the online class. We saw a a 10-minute clip of Islam in Turkey, and then another 10-minute clip of Islam in Indonesia. And so we were able to see the different ways in which Islam was practiced in those two locations. And finally, she argues that all religions change over time, that no religion is static. So I try to introduce this methodology to the students, have them read some of the things that we read in the online class and test these different methodologies so that they have this sort of coat rack to hang uh, on when we look at other religions. Is Hinduism embedded the same way uh, Christianity is embedded in American culture? I think that the internal diversity within religions is like the biggest thing that my students would walk away with as well. And I would argue that it's one of the most important things that you can instill in young people too. Have you found that to be like the, like kind of the, one of the biggest things that students take away from your classes, internal diversity? Yes, I, I think you're right. I think both the embedded nature of religion is very easy for students to understand. And I also think you're right that it's easy for them to understand the internal diversity. They they can see it very easily in almost all all religions. How many days a week does your class meet? So when I we meet every other day for 90 minutes. Uh, for most of the years, I taught religion as a year-long course. Last year, we offered it as a semester course, uh, and I taught religion in the fall and current events in the spring. Uh, I ended up going over a little bit into the spring because I it was difficult to uh, push everything in uh, religion into one semester. So are you going to keep it in that structure of one semester of religion and one semester of current events? Like, how have you found that shift? Has it been, have you found it to be okay? I like it uh, simply because religion is so much a part of culture that you can organize current events, so it's an extension of the study of religion. So last year, we did a couple of units, and one was based on the Middle East, uh, basically on Sunni and Shia Islam and why Saudi Arabia and Iran hate each other so much. And uh, it was an interesting unit, and I think uh, the kids enjoyed it. That seems like it would be a really seamless flow as well, because you can constantly talk about religion almost every single day, even if you are teaching a current events class. Did you find that you were still talking about religion almost every day anyway, even though it was not a religion-specific class? 
Yeah, yes. Uh, if if it's not directly religion, it, it involves ethics, which is tangentially uh, about religion. So if you're talking about the Rohingya in Myanmar, it is a current event, but it also involves religion. Excellent. Okay, so in your religions class, what are some of your favorite religious scriptural texts to teach and why? Okay, so probably one of my favorite religions text is technically not a religious text. It's a epic poem, and we've touched on it earlier, and that's the the Ramayana. Uh, it's about the struggle of uh, Prince Rama to rescue uh, his wife Sita from a, a, a demon king. Uh, I like that, and there's a lot of scaffolding. Uh, there is... Uh, there are a number of abridged versions that are fairly easy for students to read. And in the future, I'll add the graphic novel uh, that you mentioned that I think will uh, also help students uh, to understand uh, this complicated text, but a text that seemingly most uh, Hindus know. Uh, a second uh, text, I like to ask students to compare the different flood myths, the Sumerian myth, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Genesis myth. Uh, there's also a terrific website called Talk Origin that has flood myths from all around the world. So I think it's interesting for kids to compare those different myths and what similarities uh, they have. Uh, I also just bought uh, the graphic novel that I think you mentioned in one of your podcasts about Taoism that I want to add uh, to my study of Taoism. Nice. That's really cool. I love using graphic novels. I've also got, um, you know, the, the Genesis uh graphic novel from R. Crumb, which is like um, the 50 chapters of Genesis drawn, even the graphic parts. And it's really, really wonderful. I spend a lot of, I've spent a lot of time reading graphic novels in religion the last six years or so. Um, do you have any, a favorite um, Western scriptural text that you'd like to teach and why? Again, I'm probably not going to go to a scriptural text, but in Western religions, I like to go to George, uh, especially with Judaism, I like to go to George Washington's letter to uh, the Newport Temple, and to which he uh, said to bigotry, no sanction. Uh, <clears throat> I like students to see uh, how religions first came to, to America, and in fact, a part of all my classes involve a couple of days looking at how religions came to America, looking at immigration patterns and how uh, once Judaism comes to America, once uh, Hinduism comes to America, how does it adapt and how does it change? Excellent. So whenever you're teaching some of these challenging texts, um, what kinds of like teaching decisions and strategies do you have for getting your students through reading challenging texts? Like, what do you do in the room to make sure that people get this text in 
and are able to digest it and process it and make their own decisions about what they think about it? Like, what are you as the teacher doing to make sure that they're successful in their reading? I think probably the the biggest challenge with some of these texts, especially uh, uh, in um, the Gita or the the Tao, is offering scaffolding uh, reading instructions and discussion that helps them to understand what they're reading. Excellent. Do you have any particular uh, favorite strategies for scaffolding? Like, what do you do before reading something like Tao Te Ching or Gita that will help the students to feel ready to tackle some of these hard things? That's a challenging question, and I'm not quite sure how to answer it. I do uh, show some clips that often summarize uh, a text. Uh, in fact, um, Annenberg Lerner has a number of short videos that are readings, essentially, of some of the uh, texts. They're almost dramatic readings uh, that the kids seem to enjoy and allow the kids to examine uh, a text through a dramatic reading that helps them. You know, that is exactly the video series that I use whenever I teach Gilgamesh and the Bhagavad Gita. The Gita is particularly good. The video of the Gita introduction is so good. Um, and it, I always stop it about five minutes, though, before the end, because the last five minutes give away all the spoilers. And so the students aren't as interested in reading the text if I show them those last five minutes. Um, but yeah, those Annenberg Learner videos are absolutely amazing. And I would recommend them to any teacher out there listening who wants to talk about um, introducing a text. That's so good. I'm glad you do those. Yeah, I love especially those two. I've shown both Gilgamesh and and the Gita. They it it they're just terrific videos and make a dramatic reading uh, very engaging. Yeah. Okay. So last year you wrote an article for PBS, and the article is called "Teaching Students to Appreciate a World of Religions and Resist Intolerance." And in the article, you wrote, quote, site visits, films, and even literature can help students appreciate. So I want you to tell me a little bit more about some of the experiences that you've had chaperoning students to religious sites, because I know not every religious studies teacher does field trips or has guest speakers. So how do you go about planning your trips uh, what advice would you give to teachers um, who are nervous about like the constitution constitutionality of visiting houses of worship um, and things like that? Like, how do you go about making people feel comfortable to do these things so that they don't feel like you're um, infringing upon their rights as well? So each year we do or try, try to do at least two field trips. Uh, one to local houses of worship and one usually to the Museum Religion Freedom Center. And then sometimes we 
go to uh, a gallery. Uh, in the last couple of years, uh, there have been some interesting exhibits. Uh, we saw the Art of the Quran, which was at the Freer Gallery two years ago. Uh, four or five years ago, there was an interesting exhibit at the National Women's Museum about the many faces of Mary. So those also offer opportunities uh, for students. Uh, field trips are somewhat challenging uh, in two ways. One is bureaucratically. They're a pain in the neck to organize. Uh, you have to fill out in a public school a lot of forms. You have to get permission slips. You have to find a bus. You have to pay for the bus. Uh, you have to get signatures from the chairman, from the assistant principal, from the principal. Uh, you have to collect money from the students uh, because the trips are not free. Uh, if stu students can opt out, they don't have to, the, 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 the trips are not mandatory, though I usually schedule the trips on the day that I have religion class. But always I have two or three students who can't go mainly because they've got a test in another class. Uh, if that's the case, I just write them a pass and they go to the library uh, during the class. In most instances, uh, we get directions from the house of worship on how students should dress. If we go to a Hindu temple, they remind us that students have to take off their shoes. If we go to a mosque, they remind us that students need, to, and especially women, need to wear uh, long pants and shirts that cover their arms and understand that they will have to wear something over their head. If we go to a Sikh temple, they know uh, in advance that they will have to take off their shoes and put on a head covering. Uh, so the, that's the uh, bureaucratic part of uh, a field trip. A number of teachers have put together reflections for students to complete after a field trip. I do those sometimes, but not all of the time. Have any parents uh, gone on the field trips with you just out of sheer curiosity or because they were concerned about anything? No, uh, that has not happened. Uh, when I needed more than one chaperone, uh, I've been able to get another teacher to come along. Nice. Um, okay, so also in the article, you mentioned that you teach about the two religion clauses of the First Amendment. And this is so cool. And I'm really glad you brought up the Religious Freedom Center because I've had two employees of the Religious Freedom Center, Charles Haynes and Ben Marcus, both on this show. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your trip to the Religious Freedom Center as well? Because those two gentlemen have been very, very generous with me in supporting this show and being guests on this show. And I'm just curious about what your experience was like at their center. So I love the Religious Freedom Center. Uh, Kristen Looney, who was a director there, used to work with Generation Global. So I got to know her before she moved to uh, the museum. Freedom Center. Uh, 
and I would contact her each year uh, to put together a presentation about religious literacy for my students. So last year, she and Ben Marcus both uh, did a presentation uh, for my students about religious literacy. So that's how we got to the Religion Freedom Center. I also took a course at the Museum Religious uh, Center last year on religious liberty. So got to know been uh, during that, and I also went on a professional development a year ago uh, with uh, Andrew Mark Henry. So I got to know a wide variety of people associated uh, with the Religion Freedom Center. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you know Andrew Henry. He's been on this show too. Did you get a chance to listen to the episode with Andrew Henry that I did? Uh I haven't listened to all of the the episode, but I've listened to a part of it. But I love his videos and will definitely use them next year uh, in my curriculum. Awesome. So I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about how you teach about the religion clauses of the First Amendment. What are those lesson plans like? They're not really lesson plans. Uh, or formal lesson plans. Uh, In our weekly discussions, especially when we look at court cases, uh, I want students to understand right away what the case is describing. Is it describing the establishment clause or is it uh, uh, describing uh, the practice clause. So we'll go over definitions of both of those clauses. And then as we discuss different court cases, we'll address whether they are pra- uh, they are practice clauses or uh, establishment clauses. Some cases are pretty simple. If, if a park wants to put up the Ten Commandments in a, in a park land, it's pretty easy to understand that that's establishment. But in some cases, the lines kind of blur. And so it's good for students to learn that and to remember uh, the those clauses of the First Amendment. Yeah, those uh, those Ten Commandments statues, they get they've been getting some press coverage the last couple of years, haven't they? <laughs> Yes, not only that, there, there are really a lot of issues uh, that come up. Uh, one of the more interesting ones, I think, was three or four years ago uh, that involved Abercrombie and Fitch when a young Muslim woman applied for a job uh, promoting the brand on television and was uh, turned down for the job. She sued. Uh, it went to the courts and the courts sided with her. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know that you wrote about that, uh, those court cases as well, a little bit in your articles. Um, so you and I, you, you've read the book Faith Ed by Linda K. Wertheimer, haven't you? I've read part of it, not all of it. Awesome. I love that book. Um, and Linda's been on this show, and she's absolutely wonderful and doing great things for religious literacy in schools as well in her journalism. Um, and in that book, she discusses some of the impact, both good and bad, of having guest speakers in the classroom talking about religious practice. And I know that at the Hickey Center, you said one of your favorite things was the guest speakers that would come in and speak to you about their practice. 
And but guest speakers in the classroom in public schools is something that I found to be remarkably um, inconsistent. Um, like not all religious studies teachers do it because of you know how they run their classroom. Um, and I know that you read about some of those issues that Linda wrote about in Faith Ed. Have you ever dabbled with having guest speakers come and talk to your students over the years about their religious practices? Yes, and you're exactly right. Uh, there is good and bad, and I'm not a big fan of inviting guest speakers. Uh Three or four years ago, I called the Interfaith Council in Washington, D.C. and asked if they knew of a, a Buddhist practitioner who would be willing to talk to students in high school. So they sent us uh, a pretty elderly uh, man who pretty much just lectured the whole time. Uh, and so I decided this was not a, a great thing to do. But then I had another teacher who teaches mindfulness in public schools come and do a terrific and engaging lesson about mindful meditation. But beyond that, I've not experimented much with uh, guest speakers. I, I think it's hard to vet the speakers. Uh, so that's the biggest difficulty. It definitely is. And you really have to be diligent about talking to your guest speakers in advance about like what is going to happen. Um, one of the things that I really, really enjoyed, and I can tell you about this briefly so that maybe you can consider this if you want to experiment. But one of the things that I would do is I would have the classes study a religion for maybe five or six days and every time they have a question, I would have them add their question to a live Google Doc that everybody in the classroom had access to, so that by the end of five or six classes, we would have sometimes in the area of 90 or 100 questions documented on this sheet. And then what I would do is I would go through and I would categorize all the questions thematically and put all uh, similar questions together, delete repetitive questions. And then the guest speakers were all friends of mine. So I would send them these lists of questions a couple days in advance of them coming to class. And then when they would come in, they would introduce themselves for like 30 seconds. And then the students would just basically interview them like they were in a White House press briefing or something like that um, so that the students would basically just pepper this person with questions for about 75 minutes um, and it was always really interesting because the students ran the class I didn't say anything usually and it was uh, it was a pretty interesting structure and way to have guest speakers because the kids were running it and I always really had a good time um, so if you're ever curious about that, I'd be happy to share some samples with you of the questions that the students wrote. Terrific. That's a, a great way to do it. Another venue I thought about but haven't done is to use Skype uh, with guest speakers, mainly uh, authors and others uh, who are reasonably accessible uh, and can do it through Skype. Yeah. Do you just have one section of your class? Yes. I'm not 
actually not teaching uh, religion at all this year, but it seems to be that in the the only year I've had more than one class was the first year, and ever since then, it's run uh, one class uh, a year. Uh, part of it is competing with so many other electives, yeah. especially in social studies. Uh, there are even AP electives like psychology and uh, human geo uh, that it's hard to get um, a lot of students who want to take a uh, religion. Yeah, one of the things that I always found really difficult whenever I had whenever I had Skype guests is that if I had more than one section, um, I would have to schedule the Skype call for two different time slots. So this person would do the call, and then they would have to go away and wait for an hour or two, and then Skype back in. So having more than one section with guest speakers is always sort of a logistical nightmare um, whenever I had more than one class uh, at a time. You know what I mean? Uh, yes, not only in Skype, but with Generation Global. Uh, those We book those conferences through GMT time, and often, many times, I can organize them so they roughly fall during the class period, but very often I can't. And I might have to organize it at the beginning of the day. So it becomes an in-school field trip for many students. And then many students can't come because they've got tests. So uh, that kind of scheduling gets to be very difficult. So I'm curious. So um, in many schools, uh, teachers will plan in teams called PLCs, professional learning communities. And you are obviously the only person teaching religious studies at your school so there's really no opportunity to collaborate with other teachers that much in your content. Have you ever like collaborated with other teachers in different schools or in different states? Like have you how do you grow from year to year and and collaborate with your peers? So you're you're right. I'm the only one teaching religion in my school. Uh from time to time I do consult with other teachers uh, that I've found uh, through Twitter. Uh, For example, Seth Brady, who is a religion teacher in Illinois, has a a neat website. uh, And uh, and on his website, he showed his students making a mandala uh, using push pens. Uh, And the mandala uh, was a organized based on the school and not on a religious Buddhist uh, symbol. And it looked really cool. So I texted him if he had directions on how to do it and how many push pins would I have to buy Mm -hmm. if I wanted to do something like this. And uh, he responded. So uh, Twitter sometimes offers venues for PLCs uh, that have been helpful. Nice. Um, okay, so let's kind of like back up to the world in general. Have you ever had people just that you're friends with or who are adults or who are parents of your students that have uh, gotten in touch with you about wanting to know more generally about religion? Like, what would you recommend people read if they want to just know more? Like, what are some of your favorite books that are like your go-tos for just learning more about religion? Um. 
I don't get parents asking many questions at all. Some are uh, um, grateful that the course uh, is being offered. But if I get questions, there are probably several books that I would recommend. One is Houston Smith's The World Religions, uh, Prothero's, uh, I think it's uh, God is, I forget which God one. God is not one. God is not one is another good uh, uh, another good book that I think goes through the religions. I like Smith. He may be a little dated now, but he does a terrific job of getting inside uh, many of the religions. And then uh, finally, they might watch some of uh, Andrew Mark Henry. Oh, absolutely. Andrew Mark Henry is doing a great <clears throat> service to this field, for sure. He really is. And also, Crash Course is run, doing a curriculum on mythology that is terrific, and parts of that mythology series is excellent for religion. So, George, kind of a personal question here. How have you personally changed as a person from being so exposed to world religions for the last nine years? Like, what are your biggest personal lessons that you have learned about the world that have just made you a different person? Probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last year is, or the last nine years, is just how embedded religion is uh, in in the world. Uh you can't open up a newspaper, you cannot listen to a radio broadcast and not find religion. If you're not tuned in to the study of religion and not really looking for religion, you might not see it, but it is, uh, I think the lesson that I've learned is just how embedded it is in our culture. What kind of goals do you have for your course in the future? The biggest goal, I, I think, is to increase uh, my use of graphic novels uh, that you've uh, mentioned. I think they, that will help, uh, especially with the study of some hard text. So I want to introduce... Uh, graphic novels. I also want to experiment with Skype and guest speakers. I think that will add some uh, new engagement into uh, the classroom. And I want to continue uh, with some of the field trips. Some of the challenges with the field trips uh, lately has been that some are starting to charge uh, to visit uh, at National Cathedral. For example, they want $6 a head. Uh, the Muslim, the Turkish mosque in Lanham, Maryland, wanted a $50 contribution uh, and has now simply stopped doing tours. So it's getting harder and more challenging to do some of these field trips. And so I want to figure out how to get around that. Awesome. Well, George, my last question for you today is uh, where can people find you if they want to follow your work and maybe get in touch? 
they can find me on Twitter at GGCOE. Uh, I do a history blog uh, that's called the, Wor uh, the World History Teachers Blog. So if they Google that, they should be able to find the World History Teachers Blog, which is basically uh, uh, a blog uh, of resources uh, that teachers can use in the study of world history. Uh, recently, for example, uh, um, Strayer, who is the author of one of the AP World History textbook, wrote uh, a long piece in Facebook on uh, how to teach religion in high school, which I thought was a very interesting take from a textbook author. Uh, so that was one of the recent posts in that blog. Well, George, it has been a real pleasure um, talking to you today about your religious studies course for high school students in Virginia. Um, I think you're doing important work and I think that the job of a teacher discussing religion and current events in our public school system is completely irreplaceable um, in our society. And I really, really hope that you're able to carry on um, doing this work for as long as you want. And I think that it's been uh, a lot of fun talking, talking to you today as well. Uh, thank, thank you, Greg. I, I appreciate it, and I appreciate uh, some of the things you've shared with me, and I'll definitely uh, be in touch. I also think it's important work, and I think it was Prothero who said that religious literacy is a matter of urgent uh, citizenship. Uh, so I, I also think religion should be a mandatory part of curriculum in high school like it is in Modesto, California. Excellent. Well, thank you, George Coe, for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been a really, really good time today. Terrific. Thank you so much. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.